All right, all right. If you have your Bibles, grab them. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Please stand for reading of the reverence of the words of our God. Good morning. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kathy. We're continuing in our series through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, last week, we basically had an, an introduction to the biblical doctrine of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Uh, it kind of comes back up next week, but we said that every Christian, every genuine uh, follower of Jesus has been made, who has been made a new creation by the Holy Spirit, is gifted with at least one spiritual gift, uh, one lifelong gift, which is meant to be used by you to serve the Lord by serving his body, the church. We said that some gifts are temporary. They come on for a moment and some are forever. Some are connected to your natural gifting. Some are the opposite of your natural gifting. But all of them are given to you as a stewardship to be used and leveraged for the building up of the body. Paul continues in chapter 13 talking about spiritual gifts. But he has moved away from talking about like specific gifts and how they are to be used. And he is turning his attention to the one attribute, the one motivation, the one singular focus that must be behind each and every gift, or at least what should be behind each and every gift, the motivation. At this point in the whole chapter, it is abundantly clear. You could be the most dynamic Bible teacher in the world, or you could be the most amazing singer or worship leader. 
You could be the world's most committed church member and servant. You could be the best kids ministry team leader or Sunday school teacher. You could be the best tech member. You could be the best greeter. You could be the best person who serves your church using the most amazing gifts. You could be phenomenal at whatever it is you do. But if you use your gift without love, it matters for nothing. That is the big idea of this chapter. It's this. Write this down. Let everything that you do be motivated by love. Let everything that you do be motivated by love. Because if you don't, if you do the good works, if you do the good things, if you do the good actions, but they are not done in love, they are for nothing, the scripture says. They are not pleasing to God because they are wrongly motivated. Notice some of the things Paul lists here at the beginning of our chapter. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, or if I use prophetic powers, or understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have faith that moves mountains, if I give away everything and deliver up my body to be burned. These these things are impressive. If you could speak in angelic tongues, that's that's a little weird, but it's impressive. It's supernatural. It must obviously mean that you're super close to God, right? If you had the power of prophecy, if you understood all these mysterious knowledge, if you could explain to us the book of Revelation and finally make it clear to all of us. This is like life-altering, world-changing gifts. This is like the varsity squad of gifts. Impressive. And and then he goes on to say, you know, if you're so generous that you give up even your life in martyrdom that you might be burned at the stake. That sort of faith and commitment, it's amazing. But yet, the scripture says, you could do all of these amazing things. And yet, if you do not do them with love, you have gained nothing. All the knowledge means nothing if you're not teaching others in love. All the generosity you have means nothing if you're not giving because you love them. All the prophecy in the world doesn't matter if you're not speaking in order To help people because you love them. But you say, Brent, why in the world would I ever use my gifts and serve God and others and do these things if not for love? What are the other possible motivations? I'm glad you asked. I'm sure there are more than these, but I'll give you two motivations that we might do good works and use our gifts to do good things from a wrong motivation. Number one, it's possible to use your gifts as a means to gain God's favor. Not that you can gain God's favor this way, but you're trying to. It's possible that you would try to use your gifts as a means to gain God's favor, his blessing. When we read in verse 1 that it says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels uh, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. What's going on there? Well, Paul probably has in mind the temples there in Corinth, uh, the temples to two particular gods, uh, Cybele, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, but Cybele and then Dionysus. Because a part of the worship of those Greek gods involved the banging gongs and banging cymbals. And they banged on gongs and they banged on cymbals in an effort to get the attention of the gods, to get the attention of Dionysus. Because, because they, they, you know, the gods, the Greek gods, they're not omnipresent. They're, they're, not, they're not necessarily involved right there. They're off doing their own thing, hanging out, going about their business, busy. You know, they're not omnipresent. They're off worrying about their own stuff. 
And so if you want to get Dionysus' attention, you might kind of got to make a lot of noise. You got to make a ruckus. You got to bang some cymbals together to get him to come and lend you his ear or to get him to come and bless you. See, Paul is saying that our good works and our use of our God-given spiritual gifts could be motivated, if not by love, then by a sort of paganism dressed up like Christianity. A paganism with Christian clothes on it. He says, look, you might be out here prophesying or speaking in tongues or, or, or ranting about all your knowledge or out here being burned at the stake. But if the motivation of your heart is to try to get God's attention, to get him to notice you, to get him to bless you, to get him to hear you, to love you, to get him to answer your prayers, that's just paganism wrapped up with Christian clothes on it. That's not how the gospel works. See, we actually do this all the time. We think that if we live good, holy lives, if we do good enough, good deeds, then God will pay us extra attention. That he, maybe he'll notice us if we read our Bibles more this week. Then he'll answer our prayers. Or because I gave extra money at the church this week, that he'll have to give me some sort of extra blessing. We've all thought that way and functioned that way at some point, even if we did that subconsciously. And Paul wants to remind us that that is not how the gospel works. That's paganism. Every other religion in the world works that way. Every other religion in the world says, hey, if you can climb this ladder, do these rituals, do these things, you will find your way to the divine, find your way to God, do these steps, be good enough, follow these pillars, and you'll find God. But the gospel says, you could never climb the ladder. You could never even get partially kind of close to climbing the ladder to get to God, to earn his attention, to earn his love, to earn his blessing." To get him to hear you and answer your prayers, you could never get there. You don't have a shot. Not even close. But you have God's attention. You have God's love. You have God's ear. You have God's affection. You have God's blessing. Not because of what you have done or could do, but what because of Christ has done for you. And that's the gospel. And it's completely different. It's completely opposite. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not you. You contribute one thing to the equation of your salvation and the intention of God, and that's the sin that needed the forgiving. So therefore, we work for the Lord. We use our gifts. We serve him not to get from him, not to get his attention, but because he's already given it abundantly. And so all of our working is out of the outflow of what he's done, not in order to get him. So we don't work to get God's favor and attention. But also, the second way our motivation could be wrong is it's possible to use your gifts for yourself. It's very possible that we are using our gifts and serving and trying to do good, and really it's all self-motivated. Imagine you are listening to the opening chorus of Amazing Grace, and the, and the piano is playing those like string sounds in the back, and the guitar is lightly playing, and the bass comes in soft, and everyone begins to sing Amazing Grace, and it's all good, and everybody's excited, they love this song, when all of a sudden, boot, 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 this drum solo comes in, 
right? And, 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 and Mike's back, sorry, sorry, Mike, but Mike's back there and he's like, boom, 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 right, going crazy. And we're like, that's amazing, all right, right? And, and it throws it all off. Who is that drum solo for? And for us, it's not for the group, it's not for someone else, it's for the drummer. It's for the praise and glory of the one playing. You see, it is really easy to want to use our gifts for ourselves, for the praise and recognition of ourselves. Charles Spurgeon, you've, you've probably heard me tell the story before, but Spurgeon tells a story that I think is so help. I just tried to pull my glasses up. Did y'all notice that? Old habits, you know. Spurgeon tells this story uh, about this peasant who uh, comes before the king and he says, Oh, king, you are so great. Uh, I'm a farmer and peasant, and, uh, but I grew this carrot, and this is the most giant carrot I've ever grown or ever seen in my life. And I thought, this is the carrot bestowed in a king. And so I had to bring it to you to give it to you. And so you're such a kind king, and I wanted to give it to you. Uh, thank you for ruling so generously. Uh, and the king said, Son, thank you so much for thinking of me and bringing this carrot to bestow on me. I see that you're a great farmer. I want to take a hundred acres of my land and give it to you so that you might continue to grow crops like this uh, for the kingdom. So please take this land as, as, a, as a thanks. Uh, and, and the peasant was blown away. Th thank you, your highness. You, you're amazing. Thank you so much. And he goes away. Well, while this is happening, one of the knights of the kingdom is kind of off to the side watching this take place. And he thinks to himself, huh. If a peasant can get 100 acres of land for a carrot, what might I get from the king for a prize steed? And so the next day he comes to the, to the king and he says, oh, your majesty, live forever. You are so great and kind. I, I, I was thinking of you and your, and your greatness and I thought your greatness is deserving of the greatest seed in the land. And I have this steed and I thought you must have this horse. This steed is yours. And so I wanted to present it to you. And the king says, thank you. You're dismissed. And the knight kind of hangs out awkwardly, like, kind of like waiting. He's like confused. And the king says to him, you, you don't understand what's happening, do you? He said, you noticed the farmer who came yesterday who gave me a carrot. You see, that farmer gave this carrot to the king, but you gave a horse to yourself. When you use your gifts, who are they serving? While you're serving others, are you really just serving yourself? Because you want the praise, you want the recognition, you want the honor, you want the glory. You want to be noticed, you want to be thanked, you want to be seen. Instead, our serving and our working and our using our gifts cannot be done to try to get God's attention and they cannot be done to try to boost ourselves. They have to be done in love. See, you can only rightly use your gifts when they are used in love. Only rightly use the gifting God has given you when they're used in love. At the heart of the Bible, Jesus tells us that all of the law and all of the prophets are summed up in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. So when we serve, that must be our reason, our central motivation, the thing behind the thing. Why we do what we do is because we love God and we love other people. When we do not serve out of love for God or love for others, the opening paragraph of this chapter tells us three things result. So you could go and do, the, do good works, right? You can use your gifts, do good, work hard, make a difference. But if it's not out of love, three things happen. Number one, you're annoying. You're like a banging symbol. You're annoying. Number two, we, it says you're nothing. You 
become nothing until you gain nothing. You are nothing because God has given you everything, right? He says you're nothing. He has given you these gifts. They're not yours. It's not your abilities. It's God's given it to you. And you are, it's exposing, when you do this for yourself, how shallow and empty and hollow and broken of a person you are. And when you use them wrongly, you gain nothing, it says. Because the Bible is clear that all of the works that we do at the end will be tested by fire. And only those works, done in faith and done in love, will last. And so it is possible for you to build something here, achieve some praise, achieve some recognition, but it won't last. It will crumble. You'll have your praise but for a moment, but it will be fleeting and it won't last. So if we want to use the Lord's gifts that he's given to us rightly and be fulfilled in them and make something lasting, everything that we do has to be done in love. Well, that begs the question, what is love? What is love? Couldn't help it, sorry. We live in a cultural moment where love is talked about a lot. And it's talked about in many ways as the highest virtue. Whether you're on the right or the left, politically, theologically, uh, love is seen very different from each side. For one group, love equals complete acceptance, complete tolerance and celebration for everyone and their choices, no matter what they believe, no matter their actions, no matter what, love. But for the other side, love equals speaking hard truths, telling it like it is, holding the line. Love for them is tough love. But I think both are wrong. And thankfully the scriptures not only tell us uh, that our work should be done in love, but it defines what love is and it defines what love is not. Paul gives us a list of points on what love is and what love is not. And I'm breaking them down into 12 categories, depending on how you kind of look at them. It could be 12, 15, 16. Uh, But when we think about this passage, our minds immediately go to weddings. Because that's when you hear this passage read. Over and over and over again. You go to every wedding and they read this passage. And while this definition of love certainly applies to marriage, that is not the context in which Paul is giving it. He is telling us how to serve and love the church, how to serve and love one another. So what is love? Twelve points. You ready? Here we go. Number one, love is patient. Everyone thinks they are patient until they are thrust into a situation that tries their patience. And whether we admit it or not, it reveals that we aren't very patient, actually. Nothing reveals a lack of patience like having children. When you are trying to teach them something so simple and so basic, and they just won't listen and they just won't get it, and I've said the thing ten times, just do what I'm saying, listen, and do the thing. And they don't get it. One of the things I've noticed in myself lately is a lack of patience with other people whose problems I don't struggle with. And I just want to look at people sometimes and say, stop it. Just stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop it. The thing that you're doing is hurting you, so just stop it. And yet they keep choosing to do it, and sometimes they cannot be very patient. Uh, but in the reality, there's, there's baggage that's causing poor choices, right? But there's, there's things going on behind it. And what I have to do in those moments is realize that God is far more patient with me and all my dysfunction and brokenness than I need to be with them. God is far more patient with me. And so love really is marked by the ability of us to be patient with the people uh, when they're not perfect. People in our lives when they're not perfect. 
love and marriage, love and friendship is marked by the ability to not overreact, but to endure the faults of others with patience, knowing that they are trying and God is working on them and we need to take the long view and God is going to get there with them, just like he's working on us. You might say it like this, love takes the long view of people's lives and love is willing to wait. Number two, love is kind. Love is kind. Now, kindness here really means considerate. It means that we instinctively consider the needs of others. It is, you know, it's easy to be selfish. I'm really good at it. Uh, It is easy to know what I want, and I'm really good at knowing what I want and going after and getting what I want. But love is marked by the kindness of consideration to being perceptive enough to understand what other people want or need and working just as hard and intentionally about helping them to get that thing. Number three, love does not envy or boast. Love does not envy or boast. You know, envy, it is more than jealousy. Uh, It is want, envy is wanting what others have even if that means that they lose it or I take it from them. That's what envy means. The opposite of envy means that you rejoice or celebrate the blessings of others even when you are not experiencing that blessing. So what happens when your coworker gets that promotion that you have been working for, that you've been working your tail off for, you've been praying for, you feel like you deserve and you earned, but you get passed over. Love rejoices with them, that they got it. Envy wishes that you could take it from them and that you would have it and they wouldn't. But love rejoices with them. Parents, what is your attitude when uh, your kid is not getting the ball or when your kid strikes out or when your kid is not very good or not getting the ball or not getting the playing time, but the other kid, kids are, the other kids are scoring shots, doing great things. Do you rejoice with those parents for their kids and how they're excelling at the sport or do you envy and wish that one of those kids would just trip and roll an ankle so your kid could get in? Do you despise them wishing their kid would struggle that yours might succeed? Let me give you a really hard one. I've been around several couples over the years, some really good friends of mine, for example, in Virginia, uh, who tried and tried and prayed and prayed but couldn't get pregnant. And every time someone else, someone younger, someone else around who was younger than them or hardly even tried got pregnant, it was like a knife to the heart. What I want to say is that it is okay to be sad when things don't go your way, when you don't get the thing that you. It's, it is okay and right even to feel sad about not getting those things. This verse does not mean that you have to fake happy and fake smile and put on a show and pretend everything's okay and that you're not grieving about what the thing you're missing out on is. That's not what this means. But love means that you have the ability to simultaneously be sad about your current situation while also rejoicing and being happy for the blessings that others have received. And when you, when you do get your blessing, love means you don't boast about it. You don't rub it in everyone else's face because you know that they might be struggling and wanting the same thing you have. See, love isn't boastful either. Number four, love is not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. 
Arrogance is always thinking of yourself, your rights, your entitlement, what you deserve, what you have earned. Love doesn't do that because love isn't focused inwardly, it's focused outwardly. And so if you are consumed with self, consumed with what you have or don't have, what you deserve, what you're entitled to, you aren't going to be loving, you're going to be self-centered and arrogant. Number five, love is not rude. I just love the simplicity of that. Like, don't be rude. Love is not rude. Paul puts arrogant and rude together because when someone is rude, it is because they are approaching life or approaching a situation as if it is all about them. They are acting out rudely towards someone in an effort to get even, to make a point, or to take out some personal frustration on them or the situation. He's, Paul is ultimately saying, in these two words, arrogant and rude, that a person of love does not approach life as if life is all about them. If you see other people as they are in your way, or people as just a commodity to help you do something to make your life better, so help or get out of the way, then that is not the way of love. That's rude. Number six. Love does not insist on its own way. This one probably is the hardest for me. If you have ever taken the Enneagram test, I am a seven, which means I hate downtime and I want activities. Back to back to back. I want to move from activity to activity to fun to fun. I want to be efficient and effective for moving one thing to the other. And so it drives me crazy when someone comes into my day and slows it down, derails my plans. I know what I want, and I have a plan and way to get it all crammed in to the same time. That's what best serves me. But that's not the way of love. That is self-focused. That approach uses people for my own fulfillment and discards them when I'm ready to move on to the next thing. The way of love is not consumed with my own needs and desires. The way of love isn't so rigid that it says my way or the highway. The way of love slows down to consider the needs of others as more important than my needs. And God has a remedy for insisting on our own way. He's got a remedy to fix this. It's called marriage. And then it's called kids. Because when you are single, it is easy to just do your own thing. Like <laughs> no one else telling you what to do. But you throw a spouse into the mix, and then you throw kids into the mix, and they just blow everything up. Now all of a sudden, I don't get my plans. I got all these other plans that thrown onto my schedule. And so that kind of cures that problem real quick. Number seven, love is not irritable. It's a good word, irritable. Love is not irritable. Irritable means easily triggered. Easily triggered. Have you ever been around somebody who flies off the handle or who snaps easily? Who can go from zero to 100 in an instant? Well, why is it that they do that? It's because they are seeing the world through the lens of what they need the most. And when they don't get what they need, they feel slighted, they feel ripped off, they feel offended, and they seek to remedy the problem by lashing out. And this is the opposite of patience. Instead of taking the long view of people and focusing on their need and their journey and what may be going on in their life, instead, it's all about me and with no patience. And so the response is irritableness and easily triggered. It's not the way of love. Number eight, love is not resentful. 
Love is not resentful. Now, other translate. you probably have heard this differently because you probably heard it read from the NIV or other translations. Other translations translate this. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love keeps no record of wrong. Uh, some people, when they get mad, they get hysterical. Other people, when they get mad, they get historical. And you see, you, you know, you can't be loving and then take all the past mistakes and bring them back up. Especially if those past mistakes have been dealt with and forgiven by that other person. You don't get to bring them back up. Love doesn't come into conflict and say, well, this is nothing new because you remember last year when your mom said this, you did that. And you remember two years ago, you did this. And you remember six months ago, you did this and this and this. And you remember last night, you know, and bringing all these things up. That's not the way of love. You remember that time on vacation four, four and a half years ago in January? I think it was the second. You know, <laughs> love doesn't keep a record of those things. It dealt with them, it forgave them, and moved on. Love treats past wrongs like spent ammunition. They are bullets that cannot be fired again. Keeps no record of wrong. Number nine, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is the place that that tension I was talking about earlier, really comes to a head because acceptance and truth are kind of brought to bear in this like tension that has to be managed and figured out. It's complicated and messy. See, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, right? So when I see somebody making poor choices, hurting themselves with bad choices, making ungodly choices, ungodly actions, I don't look at their decisions and rejoice and celebrate that, you know, man, it's just diversity. You know, it's just them being them. It's just their way, their truth. That's not what we do. No, it, rather, it grieves us. It breaks us. And we don't embrace the delusion of the wrong, of doing the wrong thing. Instead, love rejoices in the truth, not in wrongdoing. We tell people the truth. We say, that decision is hurting you. That choice is wrong. That, that action may seem fun for the moment, but it's not going to bring you the joy that you seek. The scriptures are clear. The scriptures give us another way of talking about this tension, though. In Ephesians 4 5, it says, it's kind of really the same thing. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. So love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but in the truth. And we speak the truth in love. You see, if you have all the truth and you don't have any love, you will be harsh. And you'll call it tough love. And you'll be more committed to the truth than you are committed to people. But if you are all love and no truth, you won't stand for anything. You will make excuses to tolerate and celebrate every wrongdoing as actually good. And so there's this great tension here. And honestly, it should feel almost impossible for us to reconcile this tension between truth and love. I, like, it, it should be messy because really what we're doing, think about a knife's edge. You take a knife with a really sharp edge and you try to balance a marble on it. You try to balance a marble on a knife and it's always going to fall to one way or the other. Right, that, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to balance a marble on the edge of a knife. Too much truth, not enough love, it falls off this way. Too much love, not enough truth, it falls off the other way. See, the way of love isn't love to the neglect of truth. And the way of love cares about truth because to forsake truth is to forsake the common good for other people. But to forsake love for all truth is to forsake the people themselves. 
And so truth and love and holiness, perfect tension, is the way of love. The way of love doesn't abandon truth. And so we find a way to go to those people we love who are, who are living in a poor way, in an in unbiblical way, in a difficult way, and we, and we go to them and, and trying to manage, how do I love you and care for you, but also tell you the truth in a loving way and try to call you out of that. And that's messy and it's hard, but that's the way of love. It's meant to be hard. Number 10, love bears all things. Love bears all things. Let me, let me put this simply. Um, when you love somebody, you put up with them. That's a Brent translation. Uh, when you love somebody, you put up with them. You patiently, listen to this, you patiently endure the wounds of their selfishness and immaturity. Love patiently endures the wounds of their selfishness and immaturity. Or think about it this way. In that relationship, you have locked the back door so that there's no exit to the relationship. You are staying through thick and thin. Patiently enduring, bearing all things. One of the problems we have in our relationships is that we have too high of expectations on people. We have too high of expectations on relationships. We have unrealistic expectations. We think, oh, I've got this new friend. They seem awesome. They won't fail me like my last friend did. But that's wrong. Every, every relationship you have will fail you at some point. Your parents will fail you. Your grandparents will fail you. Your spouse will fail you. Your teachers will fail you. And your pastor will fail you. Stick around long enough and you'll find out. What we are choosing to do is stick around and love people through their failures. Guys, we all need relationships like that. We need relationships like that in our church because those people who we know are going to stick it out with us, even when we lose it, those are relationships that we need because that's how we change. We change not because we heard one sermon or we got one piece of advice. We change because of those friends who took the long view with us, who stuck around and were a persistent source of wisdom in the midst of our foolishness. Number 11, love believes all things and hopes all things. I think these two go together. And this is not naive opti optimism, to believe all things, hope all things. This is not refusing to see someone's faults. It's not what this is. You come into this with eyes wide open. This is never giving up on what God can do in someone's life no matter how far they are or how broken they are right now in the present moment. Again, it's taking the long view. I'll give you a story. If you've not met Connor Ford, he's the guy with all the tattoos. Over here, Connor. Connor, uh, his story, is uh, he'd love to share it with you. Go, tell him, go ask him sometime. But Connor was someone that it would have been easy to give up on. It would have been easy to give up on him. It would have been easy to say, man, this dude is never going to change. It would have been easy for his wife, Laura, to leave and say, enough is enough. Addicted to drugs, in and out of prison, it looked like he was too far gone. No hope. Write him off. But his wife and his kids and his family believed all things, hoped all things in what God could do. And today, he sits here in our church, sober, restored, saved, and a brand new dad. 
You see, no matter how far you think someone is, they are never too far gone for God. And so love holds tight and believes and hopes in all things because all things are possible with God. Think of the Apostle Paul. If, 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 I don't know his mama, but if his mama was praying for him to be saved, this dude's out here killing Christians. And look what God can do. No matter how far gone you think someone is, they're never too far gone for God. Number 12, love endures all things, love never ends. You know, you know where we see this so clearly? This idea that love endures all things and love never ends? We see it in God's love for us. How many times would it have, been, it would have made sense for God to give up on you? How many times would it have made sense for God to write you off and be done with you? But instead, God has endured your unbelief. He has endured your rejection. He has endured your lack of attention or care about him, the things he cares about. He has endured your curses. He has endured your rebellion against him. And he has endured your constant failures. And still, his love endures and never gives up. Jesus doesn't just say he loves us, he shows us that he loves us. He shows us his patience toward us as we struggle to do what is right. He loves us, but he's never boasting in, what, in his love for us and that, he, that we're not where he is and what he has. He loves us and that he's never arrogant and never self-centered. He loves us and that he never flies off the handle and snaps at us, but patiently endures and cares for us. He loves us by telling us the truth. And he loves us when we fail to live up to that truth. He loves us in a way that never gives up and always has amazing plans for us. His love for us is more than mere words. It's more than mere sentiment. But he shows it. He goes to action with his love for us. He puts his money where his mouth is because he goes to die for us. And he doesn't jump in front of a bullet as some split-second decision, but rather for an eternity he got to think about making this choice. He had an eternity to think about and to weigh who we are and what we do and how much we were against him. He had an eternity to think about all of our warts and scars, and yet still his love endured and persisted, and he chose from eternity past to come and die for you and me. And he came to die not for the idea of you. He came to die not for the ideal version of you. He came to die not for some future, more better version of you. He came to die for you at your worst. Which is worse than you think it is. And he did that so that he could keep no record of wrong against you. You know what God doesn't do? He doesn't come to you and say, hey, I know you said sorry about that thing you did a week ago, but you did it again. And remember... I got a whole list of all the things. He doesn't do that. There's no record. There's no red in the ledger. It's it's been completely wiped clean. Man, if you are in Christ today, you get to rest. Because in Christ, you have the truest of friends. And everything else in this life will pass away. Our gifts will pass away. But one day soon, we will know our truest friend in full and see him face to face. And his, uh, his truest friend, this guy, will never let us down because he himself is love. And when we know him and we know his love, it makes us into people who begin to try to love like he loves. And so when we know his love, we love our spouses better. When we know his love, we love our friends better. When we know his love, we use our gifts to serve the church with love. 
We don't use them to get God's attention. We don't use them for the praise of men. We don't care about that. We use them for others. Tim Keller said it this way. The only time that you think about your body, think about this. The only time you think about your body is when your body is hurting. I'm not thinking about my knee right now because my knee is not hurting. It's just there. I don't even think about it. But when my knee hurts, I think about it all the time. When my knee hurts, I think about it when I'm walking, when I'm standing up, when I'm going to bed, when I wake up in the morning. I think about it all the time when it hurts. And Keller says this, when you are always thinking about yourself all the time, do you know what that tells you about you? It means that you have a problem. Your soul is hurt. Your soul is hurt. Because if you were working well, if your soul was not hurt, you wouldn't be thinking about you all the day. You would be healthy enough to think about others. So let's get healthy so that we can think less about us and use our time and our gifts and our lives to serve others, to build up the body of Christ and to make much of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you that you have given us spiritual gifts to bless the church, to bless the body, to serve others. Lord, you have entrusted those things to us, as we talked about last week. But now, Father, would you help us to make sure that we are serving and working and laboring, not to get more attention from you, not to get uh, the praise of men or recognition of men, but because we love you and we love people. Father, help us to be patient and kind, not to be arrogant and quick-tempered. Help us to hold no record of wrong. Help us to embody love in all the description here in 1 Corinthians 13. Help us to love this way toward our spouses. Help us to love this way toward our children. Help us to love this way toward our friends. And help us to love this way toward that person in this room right here who annoys us just a little bit extra. Help us to love people, bear with people, put up with people, endure people, be patient with people, take the long view with people who grade us a little bit. Because that's what love is. And love has been modeled to us and a God who would come to die for sinners. If you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, you've not experienced this forgiveness, you don't know this sort of love in your life, I would love to introduce you to him. And he will take you free of charge. I'm going to stand up over here to the left and I would love to introduce you to him. If you're here this morning and I can pray with you about following Jesus or I can pray with you about uh, figuring out what your gifting is or how to love someone that may be a little bit difficult to love right now or, or anything else, it would be my joy to do so. Father, give us the strength to respond the way we need. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. All people said. Let's stand together.